0: you would pray with me and then we're going to look at that passage together. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for the beautiful day that you've created. This place that you've provided that we can gather together for worship. We pray that as we open your word and we spend time in it, that you would be glorified. We, we confess each week as, as we do this that we cannot do this without you. So we ask that you, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, would illuminate our hearts and our minds. That you would take the truth of your word, that you would apply it to us. I thank you that you intimately know every person here, exactly where they are and what they're dealing with. And so I pray that you would just minister to them, that you would take your eternal life-giving word and apply it to their lives and their hearts and what they're dealing with right now. We pray that as that happens, that we would leave here having seen you more clearly, that we would go out from this place uh, wanting to praise your name and glorify you and all that we are. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Most of you know, or if you know me, know that uh, I used to coach basketball when Joanna and I were first married. This had been about 10 years ago. Uh, When I was in seminary and Joanna was in med school for three years, I coached high school basketball. I always grew up playing basketball. loved it. Uh, But as a coach, even in a high school level, at different times when you're preparing your team to play, you would get a chance to scout, what we call scout the other team. That is, watch the other team you were going to play before you would play them. And so it was very helpful when that would get the opportunity to do that. Maybe we'd be at a tournament where different teams were playing and you'd get to watch a team that you were going to play later on. Or, or every once in a while, someone would share with me like a, a video of watching another team. And it was always really helpful to be able to watch and know what to expect when we played them. Right? So you'd watch and you'd see kind of what defense they played and what offense they played. Or, or, or simply, if we just summarized it, how they were going to try to defeat you, what they were going to do to try to beat you when you were to play them. And so I'd watch that and then it would greatly help as we went into practice before we would play those games because I could tell my team, this is what you need to expect. For example, if we played a team that played really, really aggressive on defense, right? Maybe they would try at different times to trap the ball. That means take two people and put them on one person to try to get you to turn the ball over. It's an important thing to know if the other team's going to be doing that because you can prepare your players for what's about to come. And so when it happens and when it comes, they don't uh, freak out over it. They don't get anxious. They don't uh, make stupid mistakes because they're not prepared, but it helps to prepare them to play better. And so you seek to do that as a coach to help them in these different areas so that when that time comes, they're prepared for what's coming at them. And so we get to this end of this letter that we've been in since the beginning of year. We spent almost six months in Ephesians with a short detour in there, but about six months in this letter and in this letter, the way Paul often writes the first couple of chapters are a lot of theological truth, who God is, how we relate to him, what that looks like, what he's done for us in Jesus. And so he does all that at the beginning of the letter. And then the second half of the letter is a lot of practical application. This is how you now live this. This is how this now applies to your life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you are made alive in Christ Jesus, and you're now living this out. And so Paul's telling us, put to death your old self, put on the new self, living these ways. Uh, the last couple months we've been in this section where he's talking about in this per, how it pertains to our marriage, our parenting, our work, all these different practical applications. And he's getting to the very end of this. And so we're to the last couple of weeks as we finish up Ephesians and he gets to the very end and he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then he says, because there is an enemy that is out to destroy you. I'm calling you to live out of your identity in Jesus and what this looks like. But you need to know that there is one that is out to get you that is going to do anything in their power to destroy you. And he starts to talk about this and point us to this, that there's a battle waging all around us. There's a personal evil in the world that you need to understand the way that you're going to be attacked. And so just like I used to do with my basketball team, if I want you to be prepared when you step on the floor that you know what's coming at you, Paul's doing the same thing with the church. To live this out, you need to be prepared for what's about to come at you. And you need to understand what it is and how Jesus has defeated this and how you can rest in him. But you need to be aware. And so what we're going to do for just the next couple of weeks and this morning as we finish up Ephesians and talk about this idea in the Bible of spiritual warfare. That there's more than what we can just see. There's more than just the natural world. And the Bible tells us this over and over again. And Paul sees it as very important as he wraps up this letter. Finally, you need to understand to stand strong in the power of the Lord and his might. You need to understand some things. And so he's going to teach us and show us what that looks like, how we're to deal with this personal evil and the schemes that come at us and what it looks like. And so this morning we're going to consider first just big picture the enemy that he's talking about. What is he talking about when he says this? What is it exactly that they're trying to attack us with? Because he gives us a good idea here. And so that's the first thing. And then secondly, we're going to see about how do we prepare ourselves? How do we fight back? How do we be prepared for when this comes? And so that's what we're going to do really this week. And then the next couple of weeks as we wrap this up, because he says a lot here about how we can prepare ourselves for what is out there and what is to come. And so let's start with just the first part here of what he says about consider this enemy. So he says here, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's so he talks about spiritual forces of evil, the schemes of the devil, about cosmic powers over the earth. And he talks about all these things. And Steve, to go, OK, well, what exactly is he talking about here? And we need to go back. Big picture of what the Bible tells us. Right? In the very beginning, if you open your Bible to Genesis in Genesis one, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to tell us about that and explain that. And it talks about the earth and the, the creation and all that we see. And he finishes that creation with people. But as we read through the Bible and we start to get this whole scope of the story and everything that God says in it, as he reveals that to us in that creation, he also created a spiritual realm, uh, angelic realm, not just people. Not just the physical things we see, but there's more to the world and the creation and the cosmos and all of God's creation than what we can just physically see. And we don't get all of that right at the front, but we get it as it's uh, uh, revealed to us throughout scripture. And so God created an angelic realm. We don't know the exact timeline of exactly when He did that. We just know that it was a created beings that he created it at the beginning But what we get when we read to the Bible, for example, in Job, is that we get that when he created the earth and he created people and God's good creation and all that we see that the angels were already created. Because in Job, it says they were there shouting and singing praises of joy as God was creating. They were watching it unfold and they were there in the heavenlies with him, seeing it. And so in the beginning, when it says in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth somewhere in that was also the angelic realm. There's more to what we see in this life. It's not just the physical world. And that's part of what Paul is talking about here. But after that initial creation, as we kind of go through the whole uh, revelation that God's given us, part of those angels rebelled against God. They're created in his image. What we know or they were created And they were created as moral beings. They're powerful. They were there uh, glorifying him and worshiping him. But we also know that they're moral beings. But we see this rebellion happen. And Isaiah tells us this. There was one angel named Lucifer that decided he would be God. He wanted to put himself in the place of God. And in this rebellion, about a third of the angels rebelled with him. And so what happens is we now have God expels them from his presence. He throws them out of heaven and now they are there uh, upset over this and ready to attack God's good creation. Now, the thing that God says is that the pinnacle of his creation is people. The one thing that's made in God's image. And so if you want to destroy God and his creation and go after him and attack him, that's going to be the point of attack. And that's what Paul's talking about. That's unfolded in all of the scripture. He's kind of assuming that we understand what he's saying when he talks about the schemes of the devil and he starts to talk about what that looks like. Now, when that happens, again, we don't have all the details. The Bible kind of tells us this in different parts. Some would say that that rebellion of the angels happens between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. We don't know if that's exactly the case, but there's some evidence that would say that. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. In Hebrew, without form and void are the words tohu wabohu. And what it means is, is chaos or disorder, that there's a darkness, that there's this thing here. And so some hypothesize that he created the angelic realm and he started his creation and that the rebellion happened. And that's why in verse two, it says there's this tohu wabohu. But we don't know that for sure, because then God creates everything and he gets to the sixth day of creation and he makes man and he makes woman and he sets everything and he says it's very good. And so some scholars say, well, the rebellion could not have happened yet because God Proclaims his creation very good, but there's this rebellion that takes place, and so there's a couple of things to consider there. I'm not going to I would love for you to to dig in and really think about that, read those things, think about what that looks like. But what we do know for certain is this rebellion takes place before Genesis chapter three, because in Genesis chapter three, the devil, or Satan, or Lucifer that is now fallen comes and he begins to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden as a snake. And so he's there and we learn that later on that that's who that is. We don't get that until later on in the story. But we have this war that is waging, that's happening, that's taking place in the spiritual realm. And so we see this throughout the Bible that this attack is taking place. And so I want you to understand, though, how the Bible lays that out. Everything that Paul's been saying in Ephesians. He talks about how we're to put off our old self and put on our new self. We're to put off our old sinful ways and now live in our identity in Christ. And he's talking about our sinfulness. We talked about our flesh, what it means to be sinful, to be self-centered, to make ourselves the center of God's creation rather than him the center of the creation. And that's in us. We are born into that as sinful people. So sin is within us. But then there is personal evil with outside of us in the spiritual realm. There's both and. It's not an either or. It's not that we say, no, it's all Satan. It's all the devil. It's all his attacks, although they are real. And that's what Paul's saying here. But it is also inside of us in our sin nature. And it's both and. I think you get that even very early in the Bible, like in Genesis chapter four. If you know Genesis four, it's Cain and Abel, the two brothers. And they're struggling and Cain's struggling with this idea of, of being accepted before God. And he's jealous of his brother and he's struggling with all these things. And God says to him, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. And I think it gives us this image of both that within us and outside of us. That you have to rule over it. And he tells them, if you don't do, if you do well, will you not be accepted? saying, honor me and trust me in this. And there's that heart issue involved. But he also tells them, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. And he personifies it in a way. And so I think both of that you see there that it's in us and without us, this personal evil that's out there and it's seeking to destroy. And so when you first hear this or maybe you didn't grow up in the church or maybe you have or maybe you haven't thought about it a lot lately. In our culture today, we live in a very naturalistic culture. That is, what we can see and touch and feel is real, and everything else isn't. And so, when we live in a culture like that, and we're getting that a lot of the times, this can sound like uh, fantasy. Can sound like uh, Lord of the Rings, or you know, evil and good, and Star Wars, the dark side and the light, and all these things. And you kind of hear that, and it's like, yeah, okay, sounds like a story. And so sometimes we kind of brush it aside like it's not real. But Jesus talks about this a lot. Paul talks about this clearly. The Bible tells us that it's real. And so if you're struggling with that, I don't know, it sounds kind of hokey to me. It sounds like mythology or made up or one of those things. I would just say to you this. If you object to that idea, you look around our world, does it look like there is personal and real evil in our world? You'd be hard pressed to say, no, there's none. I think there is. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that. And so if you reject this out of hand and you go, that sounds a little crazy to me or I don't think that's really true. I would just say to you, you're not objecting on the grounds of science, which is what our world normally does. This is outside the realm of even being able to be tested by that. And so you're what you're doing if you reject it out of hand is you're making a faith based assumption. You're living out of what you believe and the Bible clearly says this is real and it's happening and it's taking place. And so if you say that you're taking a stand, not only against what God's word says, but there's no real evidence to support that. That's a faith based assumption that you're taking. But it is real and it is waging and that's what he says here. And so I want you to think about what he says about this enemy, that there is a spiritual realm going on, that Satan is real. And his fallen angels, what we call demons are real, that they are active and working. And so look at what he says here. And he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Or if you look at verse 11, he says to stand against the schemes of the devil. And I want you to think about that for just a second. What he's saying, that word, there, schemes has carries with a, a connotation of a methodology or a way about going things. And what Paul says is the devil is real. Satan is real. His demons are real. And he's scheming. He has a method. He's not just a person that's kind of going at it impulsively, but he actually is seeking to destroy God's good creation. And he has methods through which he does so. He has a methodology that he's seeking to do that. And so what happens is, is when we start to think about the methods and what we're talking about, there's two ways we often think about it. I think when we start to think about this idea of spiritual warfare, or the devil or demonic activity or those things. On one extreme, we go to this idea of like uh, demonic possession, horror movies, scary stuff. And there's this fear that goes with it. I'm not making light of that. I think that's real. You see, I've been reading through Luke this week in the Gospels and how many times Jesus faces demon possessed people. He's seeing them. The Bible tells us that if you say, well, that's uh, sometimes the objection says, well, the Gospels, they didn't understand uh, like schizophrenia the way we do. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. You know, in the New Testament, it af- actually differentiates between demon possession and like a physical ailment There's a different word for it. And so when we say that, what we're doing is we're kind of saying, well, those those regressive people didn't understand. No, that's not true. They actually did. And Jesus is dealing with that. But that's the way we often think on one side like possession and scary things and, and ghosts and goblins and that kind of stuff. And that's kind of on one end. And it's a fearful thing. And then the other end, what ends up happening is we just kind of go, yeah, I don't know. That sounds a little crazy. Right? And I think a lot of times we, we live in one extreme or the other. It becomes like it's, it's really scary and fearful or it's not real. But what he says here is, is that the devil, the schemes of the devil, that he's very thought uh, out in the way he attacks us. And the truth is what we see in the Bible and what it tells us about this is he's not impulsive. He's not that way in a lot of ways. But what it is is much more subtle than that. When Jesus talks about the devil or he talks about Satan, and he does quite a bit in the Gospels, the way that he most often refers to him is a liar. that's, That's even what the word devil means. It means deceiver. And so that's what's more than anything the way Jesus talks about it. And so when we put it into these categories of being really, really scary and, and these great shows of force or we put it in the kind of it's not really there. It, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Overwhelming majority of the way that the enemy is going to attack you is through deception and lies. And that's what the Bible tells us. And we see that over and over. And so what we even see uh, in uh, <clears throat> when we see Satan appearing in the Bible at different times. The first being Genesis three, a lot of us know that story, Adam and Eve in the garden with the tree and the fruit and Satan shows up in the form of a snake. If you know that story, he says first, did God really say He, he doesn't deny what God says? He doesn't change it. He starts with the truth and he says, but is that the way he said it? Is that really what he said? And then quickly he moves to God's motives that they, they were thinking that God loves them and cares for him. And he's going, no, 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 no. He's keeping something from you. It's a subtle lie and deception with a lot of it based in the truth. And that's the way he operates. And so uh, I was reading in a commentary this week. And I think it's a good uh, picture of this. Uh, one commentator was saying that Satan is like uh, one of those lizards you find in the desert. And when it comes upon its prey or it's in a situation that's dangerous, it puffs itself up and it tries to make it more powerful than it is to scare its enemies. And so if if Satan can do that, if demonic activity can get you in a place of fear and begin to to influence you in that way. Great. So be it. He'll use whatever means that he can. But you know what that lizard does? If you don't retreat and you don't do it, it immediately rolls over and plays dead. And that's exactly the picture that we have. If I don't have a show of force that I can control you by fear, I'll just try to get you to realize or pretend that I don't exist. That's where we are in our culture. Oh, it's not real. That's kind of ridiculous. And so we ignore it. But Paul says here, don't do that. Be aware of the schemes of the devil that you can stand up against what he's doing. So how do we do that? What does he say here? And so look at verses 13 and 14, and we're going to start right there this morning. That's where we're going to finish our time, and then we'll look at the rest next week. But he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so it starts right there with this idea of putting on the belt of truth. Um, oftentimes when we start here and we begin to talk about this, the first thing we say, and rightfully so, is to be able to see lies, to fight against the deception and the evil ways of the way a liar would think, because you need to know the truth. And that's absolutely true. You know the counterfeit by knowing clearly what the, the real thing looks like knowing the truth of God's word. And that's absolutely true. But is that what he's talking about when he says the belt of truth? Is he talking about God's word in the Bible right there at the beginning? At first, I kept reading this over and over and studying this this week and reading different commentaries. And the thing that kept throwing me is then you get to verse 17 and he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so does he start with? the belt of truth, which is the word of God, and then come back to the sword of the spirit, which is also the word of God, is he saying the same thing? And as you get closer and really look at, I think he's saying something a little different here with the belt of the truth, the beginning. But what I want to uh, affirm is knowing God's word is absolutely vital and crucial to this. And we'll come back to this. I'm not at all putting that aside or saying that's not what he says. He clearly says that and knowing the truth is going to help protect you against lies But when he says the belt of truth, I think he's saying something a little bit different here. And and when we think about it together and as we work our way through it, I think you'll understand and see why it would be a point of attack for the enemy. I think we all know it very well and know it to be very fertile ground for the attack to come at us. Because what I think he's talking about here when he says the belt of truth is that you would live a life of truth. That you would live a life of integrity, that you would be the same person in public as that you are in private. That there would be a continuity in the way that you live and in your life. That you put on the belt of truth that you're living a life of consistency in every way. And I want you to think about why he would say that as it pertains to being able to stand up to attacks of the enemy. If you are living a life of hypocrisy, it's clearly out of step with what you say you believe, but what you live, it is like an alert to the enemy of that is where I'm going to attack. Oh, he says this, but he does this. I'm, I'm all over that. Right. And that's exactly what I think Paul is talking about here. That he that the enemy is going to attack our weakness. And what clear weakness to attack is when you say one thing, you profess one thing, and then you see it being lived out in another way. And so I want you to think about this, whether it's Satan himself, who is who is one being who's not omnipresent, he's not omniscient, he can only be in one place at one time, although he's a real being. And there's lots of demons, a lot of them. They're not all knowing. But they can observe. They can watch and see and then attack. And so a point of attack is going to be where you say one thing and do another thing. And they go, aha, yeah, that's where I'm going. You're going to attack the weakness. I have a friend that I play basketball with. He's a really good basketball player. Dave's really good. He's like 6'3", and he moves well, and he's a good player. But he has one arm from here down, right here. It's like he's, he's missing which is amazing that he's really good at basketball without that. But if he's guarding me and he's standing and it's his right arm and he's facing me, I'm going left every single time. I don't mean that as a joke. I would tell him that, like, I'm going right there. You're not going to block my shot because I'm going to go to that side. I'm going to attack the weakness, right? If I'm seeking to win, I'm seeking to defeat. I'm going to go right at that every single time. And that's exactly what Satan does. That's exactly what spiritual warfare looks like. I see an inconsistency in your life. You say this, but you do this, right? You say that it's absolutely important to spend time in God's word as a believer. Jesus says, abide in my word, abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a clear command of scripture. We go, yes, that's right. Bible reading plan. I'm going to do it and then I don't do it. Where is guilt and shame and attacks going to come from of the enemy? You say you believe the Bible, but you're not really reading it. Or the attacks of the enemy, knowing how important it is to spend time in God's word. So I'm going to do everything I can to distract you from doing that. I don't have time for that. I'm too tired. Right? all the things that come going to attack those areas closer and more clearly than anything else. And so anything in our life. Right? We say be kind and gracious to people, and then you're really ugly to someone. Right? That's where the attack's going to come. Yeah, you said be kind and gracious, but it's not what you're doing. And so we can uh, anticipate the way that's going to work, right? And so Paul says, put on the belt of truth, live a life of integrity, be the same person you are in public as you are in private. It's the same thing that John's talking about in First John. We've talked about walking in the light and not in the darkness, right? I mean, you can even think of it this way in, in this sense. Demons, spiritual warfare, evil is going to dwell and flourish in the dark. And if you're keeping these areas of your life in the dark that nobody knows about, that you're not confessing, that you're not bringing into the light, that's fertile ground for attacks. But when you walk in the light, it it dispels the darkness, and that's exactly what he says in First John. I think it's what Paul is talking about here when he says, put on the belt of truth. And so whatever it may be in your life, ask God to show you what that looks like. What are the areas that are not aligning? What are the areas that you're struggling with? That you're saying I believe, but you're not living. And I want us to be clear as we start to think about what that looks like. The attack of the enemy is going to be one of guilt and shame. That you're not worth anything. Uh, I had a professor speak in chapel when I was in seminary once. and he said the great lie uh, of the devil or spiritual attacks is it's not that bad. Everybody's doing it. Go ahead. It's not that big of a deal. And he said, in the second that you sin, it changes to you can never be forgiven for that. God doesn't actually love you. That's horrible. Why would you do that? Guilt and shame and piling on those things. But when we walk in the light, it removes that. And so Paul's saying, put the belt of truth on. Live a life of integrity to stand up against the schemes of the devil. The less areas you have like that, the less points of attack there are. Doesn't mean he won't try, but that's part of it, putting on the belt of truth. But one thing here when we talk about the attacks of the enemy, guilt, shame, piling on those things, attacking your, your identity and your worth, all of those things that come, don't confuse that with a good, healthy conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Spirit will convict us of sin and point us to our need for Jesus. And so when you go, when I say to you, we want to be the same person in public that we are in private and something comes to mind, whatever that is, something comes to mind that you're like, yeah, it's the Holy Spirit working in your life because God loves you and he wants your best. And he's bringing those things to mind, but being able to differentiate between the attacks of the enemy that bring guilt and shame and fear and all those other things that come with it. And so we put on the belt of truth of living a life of integrity and consistency. But I want you to think deeply what that looks like. That would be confessing your sin when you do sin. Being quick to, as God brings that to mind, a healthy conviction, you confess your sin. That you bring it into the light. That's living a life of integrity in the sense of recognizing that I'm not perfect. And I don't hold it all together. And we compound that and we make it worse when we pretend that we are. When we see that there's a split and I'm saying this, but I'm doing this, but I'm not going to tell anybody I'm going to continue to harbor that. That's the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 4 about giving a foothold to the devil. He says, tell the truth. And don't lie and don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't be doing these things because you're giving a foothold to the devil. And so if you continue to live in this splitness and you harbor it and you hide it, you're giving him this spot that he's like, yes, that's where I'm attacking. But living a life of integrity is quickly repenting when God shows you that not leaving that place, but you come and you repent and you confess. That's why we need one another to speak the truth in love, to remind each other of what God has done, to confess our sins, that we can be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. And that takes us to that second half of the verse. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. How are you righteous? Only in Jesus. Now, we're called to live righteous in the sense of being in the sense of being united with Jesus. And now he is in us. Paul's been saying this over and over. Put off your old self and live in this new self. Walk by the spirit, not by your flesh. Continue to do that. And we'll begin to live in a more righteous way. But we ourselves are never completely and totally righteous in what we do. And so living a life of integrity is going to say, I'm a sinner and I desperately need Jesus. Said this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about parenting. The first verse we had our boys memorize: First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do you put on the breastplate of righteousness? You are united with Christ by faith through grace and what He's done. And so you're called to live a life of integrity, for the outside to to match up. Uh, your, your private life to match up with your public life. But when it doesn't, when you sin, when you step off of that, you confess your sins and Jesus forgives you and it's his righteousness for you. And so when the attacks of the devil come, you said this, but you did this. And you confess your sin and you say, that's right. And Jesus has forgiven me. And it's completely and totally what Christ has done and nothing else. He's defeated the one power that Satan has. Which is to call out your sin, to attack you in those ways. You're a sinner. You're right. And thankfully, Jesus has done what I could never do for me. And so we rest in the finished work of Jesus. And so you seek to live a life that's continuous in everything. That we're honoring God in everything. But then we're looking to Jesus' righteousness in all things in him alone. And so as we end this, this first part, and in a lot of ways, this, this is like a three-week, one-sermon, right? But we've got to break it up at some points. And so this first part, I just want you to think about this idea that, that spiritual warfare is real. That there are attacks that are often subtle. They're deception and lies that are going to your identity, that are pointing you, trying to suck you away from God and what he has from you. And he wants your best. We are called to live these uh, a life of continuity. But when we sin, that's why we have Jesus, the righteous. And to go to war with what it tells us, we have to rest in Christ and his righteousness and all things. Otherwise, when there's that splitness, we'll continue to hide those things. But when we see the glory of Jesus and his grace, then I can confess my sin and seek him and follow him in all things. He's defeated the power of sin and death. And so we look to him in all things. And so we'll continue next week with the rest of what Paul says, because he says a lot here. A lot of practically helpful things for us to go to war with those attacks as they come. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, the way that you show us how things really are. Uh, I I pray uh, today that each of us would leave here with just understanding the weight of the world we live in. uh, That there is sin and it's real. That there are forces outside of us that are seeking to destroy. But we would also see that you have defeated all of it that we can trust in you in the midst of every bit of it. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that we'd be aware, that we would not be deceived, that we'd be resting in you in all things, that we'd be seeking your righteousness in all. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.